I talked my way into interviewing at J. Walter Thompson in Detroit to work on the Burger King account. So I get in there and I've got two Marines, former Marines, interviewing me at the same time and rat-a-tat-tat, right? And even though I don't know the words match and mirror, I, I'm intuitive enough to know because you know, I've been in sales. I'm matching the rhythm and they're coming at me rat-a-tat-tat and I'm matching them rat-a-tat-tat with my answers. And in the middle of the interview, one of them says, uh, when can you go to New York? And I said, right now, I can go to the airport, get on a plane, I can go to New York right now because that's where the account was headquartered. And he just, he started laughing. Like, you know, who is this kid? In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun about all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing David Patrick. David is the CEO and founder of High Performance Marketing Bootcamps. He's a partner with Wise Webs Marketing and Technology, and he's the CMO and founder of High Performance Retail Marketing Group. David brings 30 years of marketing and sales experience, including leadership positions at Procter & Gamble, Leo Burnett, Interpublic, and J. Walter Thompson, leading high-performance brand teams. David has an MBA from the University of Missouri-Kansas City, an executive MBA from Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern, and has completed the Advanced Advertising Studies Program at Northwestern University. He currently teaches entrepreneurship, marketing, and advanced brand strategies in the MBA programs at UMKC and Kansas University. Let's listen as Jeff talks to David. Dave, welcome to The Corporate Couch. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very excited to have you on today. Let's just get right to it. I'd love to uh, start. I asked some standard questions just to kind of uh, warm up the uh, show, but... Uh, so the first one is, uh, you know, we've been in COVID, uh, uh, the pandemic for a while, everything's been Zoom. Uh, I know you have a lot of client meetings with uh -huh. very, uh, uh, CEOs and executive teams and, and marketing uh, directors, but uh, what's the craziest outfit you ever saw somebody wear on a Zoom call? Um, I haven't seen a crazy outfit. I've had a lot of classes. I teach at KU and UMKC. And um, I forced the students to put their camera on, which, you know, annoys them to no end. But when I see a student in their pajamas, laying in bed, holding their laptop above their head, <laughs> that um, that is uh, definitely they're sending me a signal that they do not want to be in the class. They do not want to learn. They want to avoid life and disengage. <laughs> that's and, a that, that's body language. You want you said, so is body language. They're telling you. That is so funny. I, as you know, I did a, uh, during the uh, early part of the pandemic, I did a online Zoom course for recent college graduates. 
uh, from 6.30 to 7.30 uh, for eight straight uh, Wednesdays, teaching them, you know, the, the power of relationships and how to, you know, you're going to get a job, but let's get a great one and how to go about doing that. And you're exactly right. It was via Zoom and they they would be in their bed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, fully, yeah, fully clothed. Just uh, yeah. get to be on record here. Um, so uh, great. Uh, yeah. So um, you know, I'd like to start with uh, my second question is: uh, so growing up, what what did you want to be as an adult? Well, I wanted to be, and I became it. I wanted to be a professional golfer. Um, uh, somewhere along the age of well. Uh, we're living here in Kansas City. Uh, my dad was in the Army. We traveled everywhere. Uh, at one point, he was at uh, Fort Leavenworth down down the road here. And uh, somehow I got the idea I wanted to play golf. And he said, if I buy you a set of golf clubs, you have to promise to play every day. And I said, okay. And when I was in sixth grade, that entire summer, I played golf every single day. Uh, by the time I was in high school, I was one of the best golfers in New York State. And eventually I played, qualified and played in the New York Open, which is a professional golf tournament. Um, played Division One golf, uh, have tried to qualify for the U.S. Amateur unsuccessfully. Um, but that was that was my dream. And then uh, when I was a junior in college, I saw how much better, significantly better people were than I. And I was practicing diligently and they weren't practicing at all. And they were five strokes better than me. And, and I just kind of saw my future and never regretted, but I uh, uh, had three internships in high school and, and I started kind of getting into retail and marketing and uh, uh, never looked back, uh, started my career at Procter & Gamble and then uh, just stayed into marketing, retail marketing primarily throughout my career. Yeah, I, I didn't take up golf till I was in my early 30s. And the, the reason I did was I was working at Sprint and all these people were leaving Friday afternoon. Uh, and I right. was like, Where, where's everybody going? They're like, they're going golfing. I'm like, wow, I never golfed as a kid, but I'm willing to leave here right. <laughs> on yeah, Friday yeah. afternoons. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm so intrigued by this sport. I mean, I just think there's so many parallels yeah. Uh, to life and i've read uh some uh, great books on uh and golf uh, i i love the uh, the legend of bagger vance is one of my favorites yeah. and i literally yeah. read it the first time and i finished it and i immediately reread it and i've only done that with a few books but what, the what, author of that book has written a phenomenal book that just you know i would say it transformed my life you know i just read it six months ago he's written about 30 books but two books he's written recently about his journey to become a writer. He became a writer late in life. But uh, one book I would highly recommend is um, uh, Move Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be. And it sounds obvious once you read the title, but but the, the book is his journey of overcoming emotional and uh, intellectual and physical and non-physical barriers to becoming a writer. But it's a metaphor for Hey, what do you want to do? What you know, move yourself into that spot and do it. Um, so very inspiring. Let, let me uh, go back to the golf thing. I'll tell you two things that I took away from golf that um, I can see later on in my life is really significant. So one is um, when I was in the golf, when I was trying to be successful at golf, I was practicing enormous amounts of hours very diligently. Right? It wasn't uncommon for me to hit three, four, five hundred balls 
trying to get one shot figured out. You know, that, that was just really common. Um, so later in life, I, I have the ability to concentrate and work for extraordinarily long periods of time with high levels of concentration. I think that came from uh, my golf. The second thing is, and not everyone thinks this way, I, I do it because I, I learned how to do it playing golf, but I work backwards from the solution. My business partner is very sequential. She, you know, one, two, two, three, three, four. And and uh, and I work backwards. I'll give you an example. I, I got on a board and the board was very dysfunctional. And after two lousy board meetings, I said to the executive team, the private equity firm that owns us, after spending the day with us, is going to get on the plane. After spending the day with us, what are they going to say to each other? They're even going to say one of two things. These guys need help. They, they can't do it themselves. Or these guys got it. We'll, we'll, we'll go bother someone else. They had 20 companies to manage. So I, I told that executive team, let's work back from that conversation. We want them to say, these guys got it. What is the meeting we're going to have all day long that causes that conversation? Right. So again, not everyone thinks that way. I got that from golf. I got to get a par in this hole. I'm working back from how am I going to get that par? Yeah, that was uh, Bob Rotella's book, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Golf backwards. is not a game of perfect. Yeah. 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 It's a great book. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. There's there's so many great golf books, really. Um, yeah. I and I love the focus uh, piece because you know the difference between the you know top golfer in the world. And the 50th golfer in the world or 25th or whatever you want to say is the ability to focus more yeah. on yeah. over 72 holes in a tournament Yeah. Um, because they all basically have similar ability. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little trick a teaching pro taught me. So I was trying to qualify for the U.S. Amateur and I needed to find four shots. I, I had to find four shots just to to be able to qualify. I had to. I had to be a scratch golfer. I was a two, three handicap at the time. And so he worked with me for a summer. And one of the things that he realized was when I played around a golf, I was exhausted, especially tournament golf. I get done with that round and I was just exhausted and he couldn't understand why. And as we talked through it, I was concentrating for four hours. And he said, look, the guys on tour, they concentrate on a shot and then they free their mind. And then they concentrate on a shot and then they free their mind. I, I, never occurred. If had he not told me that, you know, I would have continued and not, you know, standing on the green when I, it's not my turn to putt, just relaxing my mind, calming it. And then, and then concentrating and actually come more effect. Cause once you get below 75 golf becomes a mental game, it's no longer a physical game. And, um, um, you know, you see people on tour like David Duvall is one of the most successful golfers in the world. He, he can't he can't break 70 anymore. Who knows why? He's got the physical game, but it's some, somewhere between his ears, you know, something, something's gone off track. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so, yeah, so you uh, went to college, played Division One golf. Um, yeah. Incredible. And so what made you pick marketing as a major then? I think it was a little intuitive, but it also wasn't. So. My first internship was at a private country club and I was an assistant golf pro and the guy who was the pro ran a phenomenal pro shop. That's where he made all his money. And that's where the greatest upside was to his income. The club gave him a salary. He didn't like really teaching lessons. He got some of the cart rental for managing him, but, 
but most of his income upside was in the pro shop. And he was a phenomenal merchandiser. And I just watched him and he would include me. I remember we went to a golf show and he didn't have to do this. I am like 19 years old and he, he's going to buy 20 golf bags for his pro shop. He let me pick out six. And I'm like, I couldn't understand why. And he said, he said, I'm going to pick out the ones that I like, but if you help me pick these out, you're helping me pick out ones that other people might like. I'm like, you know, simple things like that. So he's just very, what a great teacher, but I was kind of learning marketing and merchandising, watching him. And then um, in my classes, I took a marketing class. I found it really interesting. This idea that you could influence people. I think that's been really interesting to me. When I started P&G, I was in sales and I was learning how to influence people. And then I got to see commercials, you know, before they aired and have people explain them to me and how the logic behind it, they were trying to influence people. Like, wow, that's really interesting. Right. And then one day uh, I was in my first job out of college. I'm in sales. I'm home over Christmas and my sister for one of her classes, she's younger than me, has to read Ad Age. So, you know, Ad Age kind of piles up and she's and, and so I go into her, her, her room and I see all these copies of Ad Age and start flipping through it. Now I'm reading it cover to cover. I'm like, holy cow, this is what I want to do. And so I went back to my sales boss at P&G and I said, how do I get in the advertising and marketing department? And he says, I don't know. He goes, I, I know how to help you in sales. I don't know how to help you with that. P&G is a big company. So I get David Ogilvy's book, Ogilvy on Advertising. And in the middle of the book, it says, if you want to get into advertising, go to work for P&G. And I'm at P&G right there. And honest to God, I start cold calling ad agencies. And I say, David Ogilvy says in his book, if you want to get into advertising, go to work at P&G. I'm at P&G. I want to work for your ad agency. And I talked my way into probably five interviews. Campbell Methune, which is now McCann, hired me to work on the Kroger supermarket account. And that was, that was my start in advertising. It was very exciting, super exciting. Uh, and I was, worked in the ad industry for probably about 20 years and kind of got to the top of that, uh, you know, a little bit after the Mad Men days. Yeah, uh, yeah, Ogilvy on advertising, obviously a classic in the space. Um, what gave you the confidence? I mean, that's pretty uh, direct to call ad agencies. Uh, you know, you're probably 24 at this time, yeah. give or take. Uh, what's, what, did you always have that confidence? In some areas, you know, when um, now at the time I'm in sales and I'm making 13 to 16 calls a day, and I'm the most successful salesman in my district and my territory, and I'm only making three successful sales calls a day. So somewhere I'm developing, you know, the thick skin that salespeople do. But I also, you know, I'm young enough to not see barriers, right? I'm not seeing the barriers that you see with experience. And so therefore, uh, I'll tell you about my J. Walter Thompson interview, which which really cha probably changed my life. So I talked my way into interviewing at J. Walter Thompson in Detroit to work on the Burger King account. So I get in there and I've got two Marines, former Marines interviewing me at the same time and rat-a-tat-tat, right? And even though I don't know the words match and mirror, I, I, I'm intuitive enough to know because you know, I've been in sales. I'm matching the rhythm and they're coming at me rat-a-tat-tat and I'm matching them rat-a-tat-tat with my answers. And in the middle of the interview, one of them says, uh, when can you go to New York? And I said, right now, I can go to the airport, get on a plane. I can go to New York right now because that's where the account was headquartered. And he just he started laughing like, like you know, who is this kid? <laughs> and so anyway, I, I go to New York. I interview with all the big shots. At the end of this interview journey, they say to me, 
we've never hired anyone without agency experience. We can't find a way to hire you. We want to keep you in mind. As soon as you get agency experience, we want to come back and talk to you. Uh, 18 months later, they hired me on the Burger King account. And then I went from Jay Walter Thompson to Leo Burnett, and I ran big pieces of the McDonald's business and on and on and on. But I think the confidence came from not seeing the barriers. Yeah, I mean, a couple of different things uh, to unpack there. I mean, as you know, I'm teaching a Salesforce uh, leadership management class at KU. Mm -hmm. But uh, I tell you if, you, if you can't take rejection, you you yeah. should not be in sales. I mean, you you have to. Yeah. If you're gonna, you, you know, you're about three hundred. You go to Hall yeah. of Fame, but I mean, seven times you're gonna somebody's gonna tell you no to your face. The other thing I have to say is, and we'll get into your uh, career here, but why do ad agencies? want you to have ad agency experience i'll tell you ads. why yeah that's a great question i'll tell you why if you go to work today in an ad agency and you've never worked in an ad agency before six months from now likely you'll have found your way to the bathroom and the water cooler and you'll kind of know a few people but it, it takes at least six months for you to just understand the dynamic because basically it's you know 200 freelancers coming together. Uh, the, the closest thing you can imagine is a movie set, the gaffer, the director, the makeup person. That, that's kind of what an ad agency is. And you're either a specialist or a generalist, right? You're either writing copy, you're negotiating billboard purchases, right? You're, you're a specialist or you're someone that is orchestrating it all. And you can't orchestrate it all if you don't understand it, right? My first day in the job on an ad agency, my boss thought it was funny to send me up to the media department because the client, like a lot of clients do in the fourth quarter, they cancel their media schedules to take the dollars right to the bottom line to make their numbers. So rather than, you know, having the, you know, the wherewithal to do it himself, which he could have, and he wouldn't have been bothered by, he thought it'd be funny on my first day to have me go up to the media department and say, hey, the Kroger client just canceled $5 million of advertising, all that work you did all summer to plan and purchase it, just cancel those media buys. Now, I was really lucky the the ad agency I joined that had the Kroger account said to me, we don't care that you don't have agency experience. We will teach you that. You have grocery experience. We have a grocery client. You're going to be talking to grocers that don't know anything about marketing. So they were kind enough to take me on. So just to go back to your first job at P&G, how, how did you get that job? Wow, what a great question. So um, this maybe goes goes back to golf. One thing you can say about me in hindsight is, uh, and, and you too, is tenacity, right? I've got three rejection letters from P&G. I've got three rejection letters from Northwestern. I got three rejections from J. Walter Thompson, and I've worked at all of them, right? So I graduate from college. I'm kind of, you know, living at my parents' home for a few months while I'm interviewing I'm going on a whole bunch of bad interviews for companies I don't want. And uh, I meet this recruiter who takes me under his wing. Now, I've already reached out to P&G a couple of times and no traction. I didn't go to a, you know, a Yale or a Harvard or Dartmouth where P&G recruits. So, so it's kind of hard for me blindly getting a conversation with them. Meanwhile, I've got an interview at Macy's, which goes incredibly well. Macy's hires seven people a year into the executive training program. I get one of those spots. I've got it. I'm supposed to start work on Monday. So this recruiter who took a shine to me, not only gets me an interview with P&G in Cincinnati the Friday before I'm supposed to start at Macy's on Monday, he prepares me. 
here's who you're going to meet with. Here's what they're going to say. Here's the five questions they're going to ask you. Let's practice them. He gets me prepared. So I go to Cincinnati. I have great interviews all day long. Um, again, because I don't know any better. At the end of the day, I look at him. I go, I'd like to go to work for you. I don't know if you want me to work for you, but I'm supposed to start work on Macy's. I gave him my word I would start on Monday. If I start on Monday, I'm not going to stop. I said, if you if you want me to get work for you, you got to make me an offer today or tomorrow. And they did. Like the next day, I got a FedEx package in the mail Saturday morning. The offer was 10000 more than Macy's was offering me. I, I went to Macy's on Monday and I said, I am so sorry you gave me one of these spots, but you know, PG gave me an offer over the weekend. It was not only 10000 more, it was it was more exciting. I was going to be on the road for two years with PG, right? And just, you know, new assignment. I got to work on the launch of the Crush brand. I worked on 30 new product launches for the first two years. So just, you know, I got marketing management 101 orientation in, in uh, my first two years at PG. And then, then I went into sales. Wow, I mean your your approach is ballsy. I will say, I mean it's incredible that at 22 you had that. Uh, I I probably I, I interviewed once with uh, a GE and I had lunch with a just a hard ass yeah executive and yeah I I'm Italian. I eat every morsel on my plate and I was I left you know three quarters of my food there because yeah. he was just asking me these questions and I'm just sweating through my dress shirt and my suit. But uh, yeah, that's a phenomenal. Yeah, you're the, uh, uh, Harry Campbell was a recent guest and he he started his career at PNG and and, yeah. and he was part of the, the, the first uh, PNG Walmart team. So he was he yeah. uh, lived in Bentonville and you know that's a case study in the kind of partnership uh, supplier. Uh, yeah, there's not six hours a day that doesn't go by that I don't use what P&G taught me and I don't use what I learned. I, I took a Dale Carnegie course early in my career. And I, those two things, six hours does not go by in any day that I'm not using something I learned in either either of those two. So you, you, you're you at a couple different agencies early on. Then you go to yeah. Leo Burnett. So like yeah. that's one of the classic. Uh, yeah you know, uh, ad agencies of all time. And you spend a lot of, t I think, 14 years there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about that experience. I mean, you go to Hamburger University, yeah. you're doing a lot of different things. Yeah. McDonald's. So, so it's really interesting. The The time I was at Leo Burnett, I kept getting calls from recruiters. And my answer was always the same. I, They're giving me mountains to climb. I love climbing mountains. I don't know why I would leave because they keep giving me mountains to climb, right? So I got to work on these big accounts, solving big, hard problems. I remember like, in hindsight, I see this. I don't see this in the moment. But my first assignment at, at Leo Burnett is on the McDonald's account. There's 30 people like me, just like me. Now, almost every one of my peers at Leo Burnett started as a trainee and worked their way up. I'm coming in because this is my third agency job. And the person I'm reporting to me is giving me the best assignments. Now, I don't I don't know it at the time. You know, again, I see it in hindsight, but I'm getting the best of the best assignments. I'm working on the National Super Bowl commercials, that, that sort of thing. Um, I'm working on McDonald's has never solved dinner. I get to try and solve the dinner problem for McDonald's, um, et cetera. So throughout my career at P&G or at Leo Burnett, I get to work on new business, bringing in big accounts like, uh, like Toys R Us. I get to go to Denmark and run the McDonald's business in Denmark. I get to uh, help with a whole new team 
uh, repositioned Oldsmobile for the future. There's no no longer there, but they they were launching six new car lines, starting with the Aurora. I got to work on those car line launches, which is so incredible. It takes about ten years to bring a car to market. To be able to do the marketing to you know launch those cars is just so incredible. So yeah, I got to do that. And uh, the, the the thing that was fascinating both at P and G, J. Walter Thompson, Leo Burnett. There's not one moment I was there that I wasn't terrified that I didn't have the intellectual chops of my peer group or the people above me. At each of those places, the the currency was you had to be a strategic thinker. And you had to prove to your management team, yeah, you could get the ads out the door. You could make the trains run on time. But if you weren't contributing intellectually, you, you weren't going to move forward in your career. And so I was, not only was I a sponge, but you know, like you, I'm reading everything I can get my hands on. I'm learning. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sure, I, I couldn't do this obviously day one or two or whatever, but I'm trying to make sure that any meeting I'm going into client meetings, senior management meeting, I'm adding value to that conversation, significant value, right? And then all of a sudden I get at somewhere, I have kind of a jerk boss that gives me basically a philosophy later on, but I I come to him, I say, I think I'm ready for a promotion. You know, here's what I've done. He said to me, Dave, I don't have the McDonald's client calling me, telling me they're going to move the business if you're not on the account. I'm like, holy cow, right? Then he says, you want to get promoted. You need to be invaluable to the client. You need to be invaluable to the agency. You need to make significant contributions to the agency that that outlast you. So now I start doing that. And now I move from every agency is a pyramid with a wide base. So now I start moving from the base to the top. I get invited into a partnership, right? It's a private company. Now, now I'm a partner. And there's only, you know, 60 partners in, you know, this worldwide company. So I, I kind of find my way because I've got really demanding bosses that are teaching me that not always in the kind way, but they're teaching me, Hey, you need to be over here. Right. And, um, you, you know, to this day, I host these lunches every month because of my experiences there where I'm surrounded by really smart people I'm learning from. How do I gather that intellectual rigor around me all the time so that I'm, uh, I'm getting to a better place intellectually. So tell me more about, you think, uh, you know, most, uh, I'm going to say you were in your 20s at, uh, at yeah. Leo Burnett, maybe late 20s, but most 20-year-olds are not strategic. Oh, no, not at all. It, so it's, hard to, it's hard to understand what it is. So in the agency business, but also on the client side, there's a moment, I think I've asked you this question. I usually ask it in my, when, when I have guest speakers in my classes, there's a moment in your career where you realize I'm going into work every day and I'm not working off this list that someone else gave me. I actually have to create my own list. I have to figure out what needs to be done as opposed to the client wants this, my boss wants this. And then all of a sudden now you're becoming a strategic thinker. Now you may not have the ability to get your business, your team, the client to where they need to be. That, that's a higher order skill. But just the fact that your brain is, you know, they call it uh, opportunity cost. Your brain is figuring out in the morning, here's what I need to do as opposed to here's what people have given me and I got to get it done. Every time I interview someone, regardless of their title, I'm thinking, are you a helper? Are you a doer? Are you a manager? Are you a leader? Are you a catalyst, right? And as you start to become leaders and catalysts, you're thinking, 
oh, not only what needs to be done, I need to get the team there. I need to move the client, right? Clients are hiring me now because I have the ability to help them understand what there looks like, and then I can help them get to there. Yeah, do you think you were born with kind of that, uh, I'll say, the strategy, strategic gene? No, no, not, not at all. I, because I remember being in some agency meetings that were more above my intellectual grade, and I, I could follow the conversation, but I was a minute behind, right? I would hear what was being said. I would process it. I couldn't think ahead where it was going. So I had to learn it, right? And I did. Like right now, if I'm in a meeting, I know where the meeting's going to go in five minutes. And in fact, I see the chessboard. In fact, I'm going to move the meeting there. And I'm listening to what people are saying. I'm processing it in real time. I'm processing what needs to happen in order for it right to get there, right? So I, I, I am there now, but, but, you know, when I'm starting, I'm, I'm listening, I'm learning, I'm catching up. And that's one of the thing, things that's so horrible, I think, about COVID and, and and all this online stuff with people not working in an office. You can't watch people and listen and learn. You're kind of participating, but it's transactional, right? Think about all you learned in your 20s and 30s by just watching people in meetings and listening and understanding, right? Uh, all that's being missed right now, I think. Yeah, that's a great point. Again, you're working at one of the best ad agencies in the world, and you're there 14 years. At what point did you officially have people under you when you first became a leader? What were you doing at that point? The minute I got into advertising, I had people under me because I was running teams. And so I had to learn how to be a boss and not a terrible boss and a boss that gives clear direction. And I had to learn all that, right? And I had, like you, I had bad bosses and good bosses that I could learn from. But um, there was a time when I was running with, with a couple of other people. I was running the Oldsmobile account. We probably had 200 people on it. Uh, McDonald's, you know, a huge account. Toys R Us, huge account. So at that point, you're, you know, like Jim Collins, the book, Good to Great, is kind of referring, you're trying to figure out who's on your team. You're trying to get the right team members that can do the things that you want to do. They're aligned with what the client needs, what you need. You're in harmony. And so much of an ad agency is getting stuff done, right? So it has to get done. It has to be right. It has to be thoughtful. It has to be strategic. But it it has to get done. At some point, the Super Bowl is going to air. Three years in a row, you know, before the digital world, I got on a plane on a Friday before the Super Bowl and delivered TV ads to NBC because we couldn't get them to the network two weeks before when they were due, right? And so there I am two days before the Super Bowl delivering an ad because, you know, we're, we're all tangled up, but, but stuff has to get done. And that's one of the cool things you learn in an ad agency is just tremendous sense of urgency. The day doesn't stop at five, you know, what's it going to take? And even simple things, right? Like um, I had a client that worked out of New Jersey. He went into meetings starting at, uh, he got to the office at seven, which was six, my time. He started in meetings at eight. He didn't get out of meetings until four. And then he went home. So if I was going to have a conversation with my client to move the business forward, I had to be on a phone call with him at six in the morning or I, I couldn't get to him. Right. So, so you do it, right. You just do it. That's what you do. Uh, you talked about, uh, you know, great bosses and uh, bad ones. What You can use a name, but what, what were the characteristics of the worst boss you ever had? The worst boss I ever had uh, was mean and smart. And what a what a horrible combination, right? He was a bully. 
Um, but he was crackerjack smart. He was five steps ahead of you in any conversation. And so not only would he want to teach you by proving you wrong and how smart he was, he wanted to rub your nose in it just because he took pleasure out of it. Right. So, and I unfortunately had him as a boss twice. And, and what, what is really galling, what I think what a lot of people learn is later on in life, I learned so much from him, even though it was so painful, you know, it made me a better marketer, a better boss, a better, you know, effective business person, but it was just painful to uh, have everything. He made it just so difficult, right? There's no kindness to that. I had other bosses that were so phenomenal. I remember one time I was running the McDonald's business. I was running the Toys R Us business. I was, I was just overwhelmed. Not only was I in the business, I wasn't thinking about it. I was overwhelmed by it. And I was doing things that I saw were horrible. Like I'm in the middle of a client meeting. I'm stepping out to take a phone call from another client. I'm just like, this is not right. It's not me. It's not what needs to be done. And so I remember going to my boss and, and rather than give me the answer, he said, well, what do you think should be done? And that was his way to teach people like, well, what do you think, Dave? And I was able to get to a solution because he was being kind and helpful and teaching me as opposed to, oh, well, better time management. Right. Go back to the worst boss, though. You said you learned a lot from that person. Was it more yeah. of what not to do or did you learn positive things? No, a lot, a lot of positive things. I mean, he had phrases that he would say all the time, like everything's a math problem, right? So until he said that, I didn't think marketing was a math problem. Everything is a math problem. I teach that in my classes now. Everything in marketing is a math problem. You have a budget, you have an outcome, you have a goal, you can measure it, right? It's a math problem. And, and, and if you see it that way, then all of a sudden solutions come easier as opposed to, you know, how do I get men to buy Dove, which is a product for women, right? That That's a philosophical question as opposed to a math problem. I'll tell you one thing he said, which was, I use this all the time. I came back from Toys R Us once and I said, we just launched a new campaign. I said, wow, the client loves the campaign. He said, who loves the campaign? I said, well, I was talking to the CEO. I was talking to the, you know, the marketing team. He goes, what do the people that you aren't talking to think about it? The people in finance, the people in operations, what do they think about it? He says, you need to know what the people who you're not meeting with are thinking about the campaign. Duh, never would have occurred to me, right? But that's that's something that, that was a hard lesson. He had a phrase called angle the angles. He says all the time, angle the angles, right? And when I teach in class, I show a visual of a Rubik's Cube. But the idea is just because you can't go through the front door and the back door is locked and the windows are broken, it doesn't mean you can't go through the chimney, right? What, you're, out, you're looking for ways to solve problems and you have to you have to allow your mind to find solutions that aren't just, you know, uh, what you might think is obvious. So, uh, love the reference to Madman, one of my favorite uh, TV series. Just, uh, I just thought it depicted the '60s in the ad agency world at that point uh, in a phenomenal way. So, yeah. you were, uh, you know, probably you know ten. 20 years later, you know, 15 years later after the right. madman era, but did you experience any type of madman type? Uh, 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 a ton. But the, the first time the series came on, I couldn't watch it. It was too real. It was too close to home. You may have remembered a, another TV show about advertising a long time ago called 30 something. It was more of a soap opera, but you had these two creatives that were struggling and that, that was really hard for me to watch because it was really written from an insight. So, 
later on when I watched Mad Men, you know, maybe after having been out of advertising longer, I saw the drama, the story narrative. I wasn't, you know, but, but man, I, I, there wasn't more than one or two episodes where I didn't go. I was in that meeting. I said what that person said, you know, and how horrible was it when I, you know, come into work one day, I go, remember this scene? I go, I was the bad guy in that scene. The person that was like the, the bad person in that story narrative, that was me, right? So there was a lot of that. Now, the TV show dramatizes it around John Hamm, obviously, and and uh, uh, and him and his story. But when I was on the Miller Lite account, a lot of drinking, an enormous amount of drinking. I, I wasn't, you know, a beer drinker, and I'm on this beer account. And but if you go to a client meeting, they're they got uh, beer at lunch, they've got happy hour. You're you're after after work, you're going to on premise accounts, and uh, and that's like on a Tuesday. When I was on Burger King, a lot of the people on Burger King had been on the Ford account. And a lot of the stuff that I saw in Mad Men reminded me of the people I worked with on Burger King that had worked on Ford. Guys, guys, you know, lots of guys kind of um, working with guy clients, very masculine product that felt, you know, closest to the show. Right. Yeah, actually, I think they actually had an episode or two about Ford, uh, the Ford account, trying to get it. Um any uh, two, three martini lunches involved outside of the Miller Lite account? When I was in Denmark, I took one of the franchisees to lunch one day, and he asked me if I wanted a beer. No, you know, I'm really not a beer drinker. So he gets a beer, and it's not it's not a beer. It's a it's a beer, <laughs> and he has like three of them at lunch, and and I'm having lunch with him, and you know, we had a great business lunch, but I think that was a normal lunch for him, and it certainly uh, was eye opening for me. Um, yeah, we're on Zoom. So Dave has his hands about, uh, I don't know, two feet apart. So the, those were big uh, glasses uh, of beer yeah. he's referring to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, you're at, you know, you're just working with some just, you know, right. world-class clients, McDonald's, yeah. Toys R Us, yep. Miller. Um, incredible, right? So... Uh, you worked there 14 years, I believe, yeah. and you leave to go to yeah. Barclay here in Kansas City? Yeah, I, I, I've only been pressing it two times in my entire life. And so I'm at Burnett. I'm in my early, mid-40s. And I see that I'm on an escalator that's going to come to an end. There's not one person at the agency that's over 55. In fact, they tell you at 55, time to go. No, make room. Right. So I can count the number of people that are older than me. Now, again, I'm probably 45 at Burnett. I can count the number of people older than me and they all have corner offices and they have the title chairman, vice chairman, worldwide president, something like that. So I see this escalator coming to an end. I'm kind of I haven't seen anything new come across my desk in a few years. So I, I, I'm not climbing. I'm climbing mountains in terms of complexity, but I'm not climbing, climbing mountains in terms of something new to me. So. Um, uh, going back to, you know, I was turned down by Northwestern twice. I got Leo Burnett to, Leo Burnett put uh, an executive through Northwestern, uh, Kellogg, uh, every year. And I got one of those spots. And so now I got my uh, executive MBA at Kellogg uh, by, by way of Leo Burnett. And then I started thinking, I want to be a business person, not an ad person or a marketing person. So I, so I got my MBA. I start looking for CMO jobs. And for about a year and a half, I interview any number of places. And I, I'm always number two. I can't, I can't close the deal. 
And so Barkley comes to me and says, Hey, we got this Payless account. It's our biggest account. It's retail. We, we got a retail client and no, no one at this agency really knows retail. And we, we've had a lot of people in this top job that haven't really succeeded. We need someone to run the Payless account. So I come to Kansas city, run the Payless account. I meet Bob Bernstein. He's got beauty brands and I'm able to get my first CMO job uh, with Bob Bernstein at beauty brands. And so that was a, it was kind of a two-step. It wasn't meant to be at the time I was committed to Barclay and Payless, but um, had I not come to Kansas city, I, I, maybe I would have gotten my first CMO job somewhere else, but I did get it at beauty brands. And uh, that was really exciting. They had 25 stores. I was with them till they grew it to 55 and, uh, and, and, and I got to be the CMO. And then I got my second CMO job at Westlake Ace Hardware. They had 90 stores. It's like probably six times bigger as a company. Um, and so that was really exciting. So, so now I got to, to be a CMO and then I went back and got my, my MBA, my full MBA. So Dave, was it a conscious decision, um, in terms of going to the client side as well yes, as very what, much? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and what much. was the biggest surprise? Obviously you had tons of ad, ad agency. Experience. Wow. What a great question. I tell you the biggest surprise, which actually led to a company that I started later on was I'm on the executive teams of two companies. All these executives are super smart, super, super smart, very experienced. All of them are older than me, right? So I'm on the executive team at, let's call it 47. Everyone I'm sitting around the table with is 55, 60, 65. And um, they don't understand marketing at all, at all. They're afraid of it. It's expensive. They've been burned by it. And so here I was thinking I'm going to go on these executive teams and I'm going to be selling them Dave's marketing recommendations. And really I'm selling them on, we, we need to be doing marketing. <laughs> like we need, yeah, that, that's a different equation, right? And so later on, I start this company, high performance marketing boot camps, to teach executive teams, well, this is really what effective marketing is. It's kind of what I'm teaching in my MBA classes. But you know, they all took a marketing class back, you know, when they were in college, but but now they're actually spending sizable marketing dollars and, and it's not working they, they, the way they want. It's not driving their business. They tend to do activity rather than strategic marketing. So, so uh, but that, that was the biggest shock to me was, 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 was just what I shared. Yeah. They, I think the lifespan of a CMO at a company is uh, 18 months, right? So yeah. They're always bringing in new, uh, new ideas uh, or they bring in new people and they they say they want the new ideas, but in, yeah. in in all reality, they they really want to do the same stuff with a different person and have it have it uh, to blame somebody. <laughs> you got this conundrum when you're a new CMO. You during the interview process, they get really excited because they think you're the person that's going to come in and really make it happen. You're the person. You've got the magic wand. We want you, Mister Magic, Mister Magic Marketing Guy. We want you. That's the interview process. The minute you get hired, you realize there's a lot of stuff in place for the next six months that you just can't change because it's in motion, right? It's being printed. It's been sold. Everyone's agreed to it. And all that's the stuff of the person they just fired. So your first six months, you get, you're very limited at what you can do. So now you got to work on your stuff. And by the time your stuff gets out there, now, to your point, you're getting resistance. Well, what, what we, I really, really sure we want to do all this new stuff that you mean the stuff we talked about in the interview, or is that, is that the new stuff that you're not sure you want to do? 
And so now you got your stuff going and now you're, you're, you know that you've got a time clock on you and you've got a race to get your stuff implemented or inertia is just going to wear you down. And then they're going to feel like, Oh, this guy's just like the last two guys. You know, we're not getting anything, you know, that we, that we thought. And so that's what, that's what causes that spin. Yeah. So did you launch high performance uh, boot camps while you were at Westlake or was it after? Yeah. No, when I when I left Westlake, I started a, a marketing consulting firm called High Performance Retail Marketing Group, and I was going to consult with executive teams that wanted marketing to be more effective, right? So I was just and and I did, and I, I had a great roster of clients. I got Bridgestone, Firestone. I got um, uh, several big ad agencies, and and uh, worked with startups, helping them scale. So I had a great great roster of clients. So I did that for a couple of years. Two West was looking for a COO of an ad agency. And uh, and I went there for five years and helped them scale and grow. And while I was there, I figured out high performance marketing boot camps. And then after I left Two West, I started that. Still doing marketing consulting, but also figuring out how to get a room full of senior executives in a room that really weren't interested in marketing, but get them into a room, have them pay for the privilege, teach them marketing, and then possibly hire me as a consultant uh, as an outcome. And that, that worked out really well. We're still still working on that. So in in terms of a W-2 type position, you've had some great ones. What was your favorite one? My favorite one was uh, kind of what I'm doing now. I'm a marketing consultant, uh, strategy business consultant, and, and myself and my business partner, we uh, go into companies. And between the uh, their sales process, their marketing, their go-to-market strategy, their business development, and their messaging, somewhere in there, it's not working. They're not happy. They don't know why. When I look at it, it's you know piece, pieces and parts, and I can see what needs to happen to make it all come together. You know, if you think back to uh, you know somewhere when you're a kid, there's a game called pickup sticks, right? Throw all the sticks on the ground. And if you're a CEO and you're not really familiar with marketing and you're looking at your sales, marketing, biz dev, go-to-market stuff, it looks like pickup sticks that aren't organized. That's how it looks like. That's how it feels, but they don't know what to do about it, right? And I can I can organize the reds, the greens, the purples. The I can organize it together, but I can also align it in such a way that now there's a purpose and a strategy behind it. Now it can drive your business as opposed to just you know, and you, you've worked because you've been in sales, you've worked at sales organizations where every salesman gets up in the morning and they just go on their own, figure out what to say. Right. And that's very different than having a brand, a brand strategy, a messaging strategy, taking knowledge from current clients, putting it into future business presentations and having a purposeful way to get and close business. Right. That, that, that That's the difference. Right. It's catch as catch can serendipity. I can't tell you how many B2B clients we have when we start with that. Their sales process, when you break it down, the front part of it is serendipity. And the back half actually has discipline to it, but the front part is serendipity. Well, let's bring some discipline to the front part so that you can you can, you can can accelerate your uh, sales process in terms of time. So what what was the uh, kind of the, the point where you decided, I don't want to work for a, a company that I don't own anymore? You know, I want to work for my myself. What, what was the driver there? Well, when I was at Two West, I was helping the agency grow significantly. And I wasn't an equity partner, right? I had been an equity partner at Leo Burnett. 
And so I was bringing in phenomenal clients and big businesses and the, 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 the agency was growing. I was making the owner rich, but I didn't have the opportunity. I mean, I was getting bonuses and I was getting um, commissions on some stuff I was bringing in, but I, I didn't have an equity stake. So that was pretty galling because I was, you know, I was increasing the growth of the agency significantly. When I left Westlake, I talked to other CMOs. I was just, you know, naturally thinking, oh, my next CMO job will be bigger, you know, bigger client. And every CMO that was my friend said, why do you want another one of these jobs? They're actually horrible jobs. You just get beat up every day. And then I I wrote a little business plan, like a one-page business plan. And I showed it to 15 people that were my friends and they, they gave me some feedback that was, you know, super helpful and very critical, but super helpful. And I was asking them two questions. Do you think I can do this? Do you think this is needed? The first person I showed it to, he was, he was the number two guy at Applebee's and he said, Dave, every time you use the word strategy, it sounds fuzzy. I don't know what I'm buying, but it sounds expensive. Wow. That was helpful, right? I had to sharpen my pencil. The next guy I showed it to was the CEO of a big ad agency. He read my little, you know, outline and he said, I'm so jealous of you. So how can you be jealous of me? I'm unemployed. You're the CEO of a big ad agency. He said, you've taken what you're great at, what you love doing. And you say, I'm going to go out and do this for people. He says, I sit in meetings all day, finance HR meetings. And he says, that's not what I want to do, but that's where all my time goes. So, wow, that was helpful, right? And as I met with each one of these people, I kept sharpening my pencil. Honest to God, the last three people I talked to, they said, this is great. I need this. Can you do this for me? And I said, I'm not selling you. You're my friend. I need this. Can you do this for me? That's how I got my first three clients as a, as a consultant. Wow. What, what was the biggest transition for you coming from a, a corporate job into your, into your own company? I couldn't, I couldn't see around the corner. There's a guy here in town, John Noe. Uh, he owns John, John, JNA Advertising, but he's, he's been a senior executive at several companies. He and I got to know each other uh, when I was at Barclay and became good friends. He was so kind to me. What, one of the coolest things when you hang out your shingle as an entrepreneur, everyone wants to help you. Everyone's so willing to help you. No one wants anything in return. People help them. They want to help you, right? So I was meeting with John like for lunch every month for about six months. And, and I just say, John, what, tell me what's around the corner. I can't, I can't see around the corner. And some things are little like, you know, how do I bill a client? How do I chase a client that's not paying? What do I charge a client? Right. Just, it's just little things that are practical, but you know, you kind of learn on your own. I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a big aha, which was so transformative. And I teach this in my classes so a very good friend of mine introduces me to a friend of his who's a marketing consultant. And we sit down for breakfast and she says to me, I love being a consultant. I hate doing biz dev. I'm not good at doing biz dev. And, and I know that I'm, I don't know that I'm going to be good at biz dev, but I, but I'm not afraid of it. Cause you know, that's what I've been doing in ad agencies and, and, and uh, when I was in sales. So she says to me, if you happen to get more clients than you, than you, and you need help on, I'd like to help you work on it. Like, wow. What a lucky guy I would be, right? I'm just starting my company. So we're having that conversation basically in February by May, I've got three clients. I've got two more on the way. I'm overwhelmed. And if you're a consultant, you've got capacity issues. She starts helping me. And then I realize 
and I, t- I tell this to other, you know, consultants or people that want to, you know, you, you got to get clients. If you can't get clients, you don't have a business. You, you can't be an unemployed entrepreneur, right? So I, I became like exceptionally good at getting clients and I knew and developed sales processes. I knew the rhythm of it. For example, right now, if I'm not doing BizDev today, February 2nd, I'm not going to have a client in May. It takes six weeks at the earliest for me to get a check. If I meet you today, everything goes great. So I, so I, so I learned, okay, there's an arc to this thing. I figure out the timing. Hard to meet people in August, hard to meet people in December, right? You kind of figure out these, these pieces. But um, so anyway, this person I ended up partnering with, she was just so helpful to me in terms of just work capacity. But I really understood there's two parts. There's getting clients and that's a different skill than doing the work. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's the the biggest aha for a lot of people that quit corporate America, and you know they had a you know a nice W two check, uh, the yeah. bonus, the annual bonus, the perks, yeah. and then you're like, oh, now you're on your own. You got to find your own work and clients, yeah. and it's you know it's it's a process and it's a daily process. And we've talked about the book uh, Fanatical uh, Prospecting right. by Jed right. Blount. It's you know. Yeah. It, it, it's 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 unbelievable in terms of uh, uh, a friend of mine, Ray Rucker, also uh, wrote a more tactical book uh, where he actually has email templates. It's uh, how to uh, get to first base in sales. Uh, it's, it's another great book uh, yeah. by a local author. So, yeah. So in terms of uh, your clients today, tell the audience about who you targeted. Uh, you know, is it uh, CMOs or what? Who do you want to talk to first? So all, all my clients are CEOs. If I go in through the CMO door, I might get an assignment, but it won't be with the executive team. It'll be for the CMO, helping the CMO solve a problem. But if you look at like the last three, four, five years, all of our clients are CEOs. They're CEOs that generally come to us with a specific question, issue, problem. But as we dig into their business, we really find out Sales, marketing, biz dev, go-to-market messaging isn't aligned. Isn't aligned to a purposeful strategy. It's not driving the business. It's not creating growth, right? And marketing is supposed to create growth. It's not supposed to just like do stuff. It's supposed to create growth. And so uh, what we do is very in a very disciplined way, we analyze the business. We uncover issues and opportunities. We develop a strategic plan. Uh, all the while, we're getting concurrence, and then we're um, and then we're uh, developing an action plan that implements. It's very hard for companies once they even have a strategic plan to get it off the page into into implementation. So we help them with that. So I'll, I'll just give you a few examples of things we've done. So we had a restaurant chain come to us, and the CEO said, "My my heaviest users, my most frequent users, are coming less. I need to understand why." So that was really a critical piece of their business, right? Because they drive all the profit. So we were able to understand that, figure that out and and provide an action plan. And, and there's still a client, you know, uh, six years later. We had a um, a client this past year that was phenomenally successful at B2C, but they hadn't really developed a B2B strategy, even though every time they got a B2B client, it was a multiplier. They would get multiple assignments out of it. They just hadn't figured out that. We've had two or three tech companies that um, they're all B2B and they're selling 
uh, tech, really expensive tech solutions to large clients, but they don't have a very disciplined sequential sales and marketing process. It's, it, it's, it's too heavy on Joe knows Bob and, and, and Joe's only good as the people he knows. Um, but even when Joe starts conversations, it isn't moving people forward. It's just conversation, right? And so we're able to add to that. We've had uh, clients that had to go into new sales channels that they they weren't familiar with, but they needed to go there, help them think through that. We had a very big, large retailer in town that um, the category was moving into new product areas, and this person wasn't sure that they they wanted to or needed to, and it was a huge investment. And so they came to us and they said, can you help us understand to make a better decision? And we were able to do that. We understood the category, the company, the competition. Uh, we do a lot of proprietary research. Um, and uh, and again, we're, we're getting to not only a strategy, but an implementation plan that moves it forward. A lot of times the, um, the value proposition is phenomenal of the company, but, but the potential isn't being unleashed. You know, the way we talk about ourselves is we create new growth, levels of growth, new growth curves because we're really kind of taking that value proposition and, 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 and finding and unlocking the potential of it is really what we do effectively. So unless you were the CMO and became the CEO, right. uh, why, why do you think most CEOs with a non-marketing background have trouble grasping it? They're all quant people and they all talk to quant people, right? So if you, if you look at the executive suite, there's someone running the stores. There's someone buying the merchandise. There's someone running the finances. There's someone running the people piece. All of those are quantitatively measured. Then here comes the marketing guy, oftentimes talking about the brand and awareness, and it gets a little fuzzy. And the CEO says, wait a minute, I gave you a $7 million budget last year. You're asking me for a $10 million budget is that extra $3 million that I'm actually, I'm actually taking out of EBITDA. I'm taking it right out of EBITDA and I'm going to give it to you. What am I going to get for that extra 3 million? It gets fuzzy, right? And the CEOs, you know, have just had a long history of disappointment. How, how come our website isn't delivering more customers to us? How come our phone's not ringing? How come, you know, we wanted to get into the plant business, uh, you know, uh, uh, seasonal plants and we haven't really built demand for that how, how come you know so they just get really frustrated they 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 want marketing it doesn't act like this anyway just because they want it but they want kind of a one-to-one -one correlation right because they have that in other parts of their business um and i'll tell you where they make they make two big mistakes this is kind of what i tell them you know when i'm speaking to them candidly they first of all they don't understand the role of marketing right? There's only, there's only two jobs of marketing at any company. One is get the ads out the door, right? We've got to get the ads out the door today. Where's our Facebook campaign? Where's the direct mail pieces that are going out, right? There's, there's a big production unit that's getting ads out the door on any company. And that's what the CEO sees. Oftentimes the piece that's neglected is where are we going? Right, that piece isn't getting done. Where are we going with our messaging, our marketing, our demand creation? The second thing they all fall down on pretty consistently is they under hire. 
If I need a director, I'm going to hire a manager. If I need a VP, I'm going to hire a director. If I need a CMO, I'm going to hire a director or see a CMO, I'm going to hire a director. And so what happens is if you hire two junior people, then the junior person goes into the CEO's office and says, what, what do you want to do with the marketing? And the CEO goes, well, what do you want to do? And they both look at each other and they don't know how to answer that question because there's no one in the room that can answer. So therefore, what are we going to do? What needs to be done? Right. And so they end up with a lot of activity. Oh, well, why don't we do a punch card? I see our competitions doing that. Or our competitions on TikTok. We should be there too. Yeah, I think part of it is, and uh, you know, since you got your executive uh, MBA from uh, Northwestern, the, the great uh, Phil uh, Kotler Phil, uh, right. quote about uh, marketing, he said, uh, you know, marketing takes a day to learn, but a lifetime to master. Yeah. And I think when I was at uh, Sprint PCS, when we were a startup, I was employee 55 there. We're trying to decide, you know, what what color the box is going to be where we put our phones and it was between red and black. And we're in a room with, I don't know, 25 people, you know, the, the, the CMO, the, the chief network officer, uh, you know, the VP of HR, whatever. I mean, all these people, you know, and the, the, the head of the network is saying, Oh, I don't know. I like the red box, but you know, like whatever, like, <laughs> cause everybody thinks they know because they, they consume, you know, products and they watch commercials and they think they know, but it's always an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Dave, how could people get a hold of you if they're interested in your services? Uh, if you go on LinkedIn, you can find me, uh, David Patrick. Um, you can also, uh, connect me through wise webs. I'm a partner with, uh, Terry Jordan. She's the CEO and founder of wise webs. It's a marketing and technology company. And uh, even though uh, the name would indicate, as we do, a lot of technology for clients, website builds and platform builds and uh, proprietary technology, we, we together primarily about 80% of our business is strategy, strategic thinking and helping clients solve sales marketing. Um, and my, uh, you can reach me at Dave, D-A-V-E at Wise, W-I-Z-E. W-E-B-Z, wisewebs.com, but very easy to find me on LinkedIn. Great. I mean, so, uh, yeah, I will say you were the, you're one of the bri most brilliant people in terms of marketing and strategy and business strategy I have ever met. Uh, oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. So I try to end, uh, end here with uh, kind of some helpful tips, uh, try to help two different demographics. The, the first is... Uh, I know you're a longtime teacher at uh, University of Kansas and the University of Missouri, Kansas City. But at, for recent college graduates, somebody graduating in May, what what uh, career advice, uh, interview advice would you give them? Um, there's two different interviews. There's the interview where she's a nice gal. He's a nice guy. And there's an interview where the person you're talking to says, we can't live without you. So I learned this at Leo Burnett, and I'll come back to that as an example. But if you go into the interview and the interview is concluding and they think, wow, you're nice, you're nice, you can do the job. Well, you, you've just been at parity with 20 other people they talk to. And that's very different than if you get done interviewing and the, and the person you're interviewing with picks up the phone, calls HR and says, I don't want this person interviewing with anyone else in the company. I want this person on my team. When can we get this person an offer? Right. 
at Leo Burnett, you had three types of interviews. You had a screening interview on the phone. You came in and you interviewed with two or three people. And then you got invited in for what they call a full round. And you you spent the day at Burnett. You had lunch with someone that was in the job that you were going to get. And you interviewed with six executives. If every one of those executives did not call HR and say, I want Dave on my team, you didn't get a job offer. Simple as that. Yeah. What, what's your number one tip to get to that point, though? Incredible preparation. Incredible preparation. There's a quote I'm using in one of my classes right now that says, are you your prepared self or are you your improvised self? Right? So there's a lot of times in, in the world where you're your improvised self, but but then you're pre- your prepared self, right? And that, that means understanding, right? It, it, here's a great thing with networking, right? And I've used this, obviously. So I'm going to interview uh, for a job at XYZ Corporation, and I'm going to interview with Bob. I can use my network to find out people that used to work for Bob, used to work with Bob. They can tell me all about Bob. They can tell me about the company. They can tell me whether or not I want to work there. They can tell me what the issues, the opportunities are. They can tell me if I'm going to be a good fit. They can tell me about the culture. I go into that interview. Now I'm enormously prepared as opposed to I'm only learning about Bob through the questions he's asking me. Yeah, no, I love that advice. And that's where, you know, building relationships and and LinkedIn is so critical. The next group, I uh, and we'll end with this. Um, you're you're recently appointed, uh, promoted to a manager. You're an individual contributor, and now you're a leader, uh, or at least on on paper in the in the org chart. What what advice on leadership would you have to that uh, that person? So I think there's two or three pieces. One is, um, you know, Stephen Covey has this. Uh, habit called first seek to understand and be understood. So if you're meeting a new team, um, understanding that team, who's on the team, what can they tell you? What can you learn from them? Genuinely in a kind and caring way, trying to understand um, the value that each person has, right? When I, when I joined this to West agency, I had a whiteboard in my office and I sketched out basically the journey of making an ad from client to production, right? There's like 20 steps. And everyone that came in my office, I said, tell me where you fit on this journey and how you add value. Right now, I'm trying to understand their job. I'm trying to understand their perspective, how they see their job. But I'm also learning about the agency in that way. But really, the first, you know, step one is listen, and learn, meet everyone, meet all your clients, meet uh, meet people above and below you, uh, learn how decisions get made in the company, right? They're different at each company. Um, and then at some point you have to figure out, so therefore what, what do you envision needs to be done? And then you need to make sure that everyone understands where you're going to go. And then you can give the option to people if they don't want to go on the journey with you, right? When I got to Westlake, uh, you know, in, in short order, I was able to tell the team, Here's where I'm going to take this. We are no longer the ad department. We're going to become the marketing department. Well, here's what that means. Here's where I'm going to take it. If you don't want to go on this journey, I will help you wherever you want to do. But this is the journey I'm going to take everyone. So it's really clear. And then and then I was recruiting people in to help me be successful in that journey. Yeah, no, I love that advice in terms of a, a newly appointed leader um, and I think it's similar if you, you know, go into a company and inherit uh, 
a team, you want to go on a listening tour, you know, yeah. and, and understand everything. So, uh, Dave, you're fantastic. Uh, every time I have a conversation with you, I, I come out a smarter person. I want to oh, thank you so likewise. much for being a guest. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. Well, thank you. And you yeah. need a guest speaker in your class. Uh, please feel free to request it and ask me. I'd love to. Absolutely. Enjoy the rest Great. of your day, Dave. Thank you. Awesome. You too. Thank you. I just love talking to Dave Patrick because I'm always smarter after I talk to him than I was before. And anytime you can talk about Mad Men, golf, Leo Burnett, Super Bowl commercials in an episode, I think that's phenomenal. Joe, what was your take? I was struck by, uh, towards the beginning, you guys in golf, I don't get golf, but you're always talking about golf and talking about all the metaphors that, uh, that golf is. And so when he was talking about that, one of the things he talked about was his approach to problem solving. And he said that he solves problems backwards and he compared it to other people that may solve problems sequentially. So he said, I always position myself so that I'm thinking of the solution to the problem first, and then I work backwards to solve it, to say, what will it take for us to get to that solution? So I've got a philosophy that I've had for several years that's very similar to what Stephen Covey has about begin with the end in mind. I talk about solving problems outside in. And by that, you think of what is the solution and where are we now? And then you work toward the middle and then that kind of tells you how to solve the problem. I know a story about that from the old um, TV show, I Love Lucy where the writers talked about how they would write stories for I Love Lucy. And uh, if you take the famous episode where the uh, Lucy and Ethel were um, stomping grapes to make wine and stomping grapes on a big vat with their bare feet. And the way that they wrote that episode was the writers would first of all say, wouldn't it be funny if we put Lucy and Ethel together in a great big vat of grapes, stomping the grapes into wine with their bare feet? And they think about how funny that would be and the slapstick that could be derived from that and everything. And then they say, what would it take for us to get Lucy into that position? That is, they work the entire episode backwards from the, from the final scene of the episode, um, which is just another way of looking at problem solving or another way of looking at outside in uh, problem solving like I talk about. It's really interesting to see the different people that have different solutions to problems like that. I think the important thing is that you have a method to that solution, that whether you're working inside out or outside in or sequential or whatever, at least you understand what that method is about how you're solving that problem. Yeah, and I also loved uh, what he came up with, his kind of philosophy, uh, and he definitely practices it when he was at Leo Burnett and he wanted to know how to get promoted. So his goal at every interaction, every meeting, whether it was internal or client meetings, was to add value to every conversation he was in. So I really love that. Any uh, words of wisdom in terms of leadership to, to end this? Yeah, uh, this episode made me think of the, a quote from that great philosopher, Dr. Sheldon Cooper who once said, one does not cry because one is stupid. One cries because one is sad. For example, I cry because others are stupid and that makes me sad. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.